This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's webinar. My name is Shireen, and I'm moderating today's conversation, Crisis and Uprising in Lebanon, the Roots of the Explosion. Before I introduce the speakers, I want to thank the organizers and sponsors of this teach-in, Haymarket Books and the DSA's International Committee. Now, it's my pleasure to bring in uh, Rima Majid, Lara Bitar, and Basil Salouh. Rima Majid is a writer, activist, and assistant professor of sociology at the American University of Beirut. Her, her research focuses on social movements and sectarianism in the Middle East. She has written extensively on the political economy of sectarianism, protests and uprising in Lebanon and Iraq, structural transformation and unemployment in post-war Lebanon, and the importance of labor organizing. Her work has been published in Middle East Eye, Open Democracy, Al Jazeera English, and more. She's currently working on a book that looks at sectarian capitalism in Lebanon. Lara Bitar is a journalist in Beirut and the founding editor of The Public Source, a Beirut-based independent media organization that covers socioeconomic and environmental crisis, afflicting Lebanon since the onset of neoliberal governance in the 1990s, and provides political commentary on events unfolding in Lebanon's current uprising. Her work centers marginalized communities and connects their struggles to broader frameworks. She contributes reports on social movements and civil unrest to grassroots media projects in the U.S. and Lebanon and writes for regional and feminist publications. Basil Sabouh is Associate Professor of Political Science at the Lebanese American University in Beirut. He is co-author of The Politics of Sectarianism in Post-War Lebanon and Beyond the Arab Spring, Authoritarianism and Democratization in the Arab World. And he is co-editor of Persistent Permeability, Regionalism, Localism, and Globalization in the Middle East. His current research interests include a critique of power-sharing arrangements in post-war states and regional dynamics in the Middle East after the popular uprisings. So thank you all for being here. Uh, I wanted to start by talking about the explosion uh, that ripped through Beirut just over two weeks ago on August 4th. Uh, August 4th. Um, it was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in world history, and it killed over 200 people and, and wounded and displaced thousands. So if you all could tell us how the explosion affected the city of Beirut, what was understood popularly to be the cause of the blast, and what was the response on the streets, uh, if you could each speak a bit about this to start us off. Uh, would you like me to start? Uh, I was going to take the question on the street, but Rima, if you'd like to go ahead. Um, whatever uh, Shireen wants, I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, okay, so I think, um, I mean, uh, first, uh, thank, thank you, Shireen and Danny and uh, Sean and everyone at Hay Market for uh, putting together this event. Um, 
Yeah, I think, I mean, th- this explosion is, as, as, you, as you're saying, it's one of the biggest non-nuclear explosions in the history of mankind. Um, and uh, definitely the effects on the city are, are huge, mainly the effects on the residents of this city, but also of this country more, uh, more broadly. Um, uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, t- more than 200 killed. We're talking about 7,000, around th- 7,000 injured. Uh, we're talking about, um, um, you know, uh, still around um, 20 people missing, um, but also a capital that, uh, you know, half of the capital has been very heavily uh, uh, affected. More than 200,000 homes and shops have been uh, uh, damaged, uh, glass shattered everywhere, not just in the capital, but everywhere around uh, the country, even in the mountain it was felt. This is an explosion that happened in Beirut and that was felt in Cyprus. This is how uh, how big it was. Uh, we're also talking about around 8,000 building uh, damaged, uh, some of those are heritage buildings. Now, while the car has um, uh, uh, been on on the two most gentrified neighborhoods, if you will, if you want, of uh, Madame Khayel and Jemaisi. Uh, there are many other lower class uh, neighborhoods that were very heavily hit by this uh, uh, by this blast, such as uh, you know Karantina, Bishhamoud, Khanda Al Ghami, etc. And these are areas that are uh, you know that uh, uh, really require an, uh, an attention because these are areas that uh, that have many residents that are uh, refugees or uh, migrant workers or uh, low-wage workers. And and the whole discourse now around reconstruction, although I have, um, you know, many problems with uh, with framing it as reconstruction, um, there's, uh, you know, we need to rethink about what city do we want and reconstruction for whom and by whom. Um, And in many cases, we see that, you know, the aid that has been coming and how it's been distributed, uh, there is some xenophobic and racist discourse around refugees benefiting from, uh, you know, from the aid or et cetera. So I I think that, you know, there's uh, the risk of falling in a a nationalist discourse uh, is something that we need to keep an eye on and and that we need to clearly push against um, and explaining and understanding uh, what is happening. Uh, also, uh, of course, the class dimension in, in, in the sense that, uh, of course, th- those areas that are uh, most gentrified and mo- where most of the pubs and clubs and, uh, you know, nice restaurants of the city are located were very heavily hit. Uh, but also other areas around uh, that uh, region. And, you know, I was just thinking today that there's something um, uh, almost you know, uh, very sad, but also ironical about the state has just uh, reinforced today uh, kind of a lockdown. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, there's the area called Quarantina, which comes from the word uh, quarantine, uh, oh actually called Quarantina because of the quarantine that happened at the beginning of the 20th uh, century during the pandemic back then. Um, this is an area that is now completely shattered. This is a neighborhood. This is actually the closest neighborhood to to, uh, to where the explosion happened. So what does it mean today to call for a lockdown uh, when, you know, even Carantina, no, I mean, no longer has uh, uh, any houses that can be, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, lived in. So, um, I mean, the, so there's this context where the the damage of the explosion is huge and uh, is huge in its human cost, but also in its implication on the on the city, on a city that is already that was already, uh, you know, extremely tired. Uh, its residents and the city itself with uh, almost a year now of financial uh, freefall, um, um, you know, uh, mass layoffs uh, that have left many people unemployed in an economy that already had a very high rate of unemployment, an economy that is uh, that relies very much on exporting uh, the youth and, um, uh, you know, that relies on remittances because it's a dollarized uh, economy. Um, while the world is, is, is diving into an economic recession, it's very difficult for people to even leave now. Um, so there's a very complex uh, uh, picture in terms of the social implications of a crisis, a pandemic, a revolution that was that uh, you know is still uh, struggling against a very harsh counter-revolution uh, that we can we can talk a bit more about in a bit. But with this explosion, everything uh, was was magnified so much. And um, while one would think that you know this would be a turning point that would put an end uh, to you know this this uh, ruling class. Um, we quickly realized that actually disaster capitalism um, uh, is, uh, you know, is at its best now. We have very quickly seen how international, um, um, you know, countries from around the world have uh, very quickly uh, uh, interfered. Um, you know, all sorts of navies are on the shores of uh, of uh, Lebanon now, and um, and we have also seen how real estate companies have quickly jumped on the on the scenes of uh, those very shattered neighborhoods and trying to already buy uh, those houses, uh, demolished houses or or affected houses that they would want to demolish in order to build their their high rises so it's a very t- critical turning point the effects on the country are uh, are are critical because it's it doesn't just happen um, it's not just the explosion but it's the the, the uh, compounded effect of an explosion a financial a very very deep financial crisis we're talking about a country that has a deficit of around a bi- uh, hundred billion dollars uh, um, with the explosion uh, the estimates are that this uh, the cost uh, um, or the loss of after the explosion is around 10 to 15 billion dollars um, and it has also hit uh, areas where a lot of businesses are centered. So many people have lost their jobs because physically they're no longer there. Um, so it's a, it's a very detrimental um, situation. And uh, and I think the effects will, will keep on unfolding for, I think, years, if not decades to come. Uh, Basil, do you want to talk about uh, the popular conceptions of, of who was responsible for the blast? Yeah. I mean, I'll pick up from the uh, number of issues were underscored by this, by this explosion. First of all, I mean, you get the, immediately the feeling that there is no state in this country and the, the state has no institutional uh, capacity. I mean, for a country that has been through civil war and then a whole long period of reconstruction and post-war and so on, you would think that the state has some kind of ability to manage such a crisis. And immediately it was obvious for everyone that there is really no state response. And so the Lebanese, as is always the case, uh, went into survival mode. I don't know if this is something good or bad. I tend to think the latter, actually, in the sense that uh, 
people should, after a crisis, should go through a period of healing and not be responsible themselves for doing what the state does. So in addition to the the failure of state institutions, uh, there is simply no trust in anything that the state does. And I think this is why this explosion in many ways connects very directly with the pathologies and the paralysis of the uh, of the political system. People immediately identified it with all that is bad uh, in this uh, political system, and no kind of investigation will 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 be uh, considered trustworthy by most Lebanese. Uh, because they simply do not have any trust either in the intentions or the capabilities of of the state. And as Rima was saying, I mean, you would think that such an explosion would shock the political class and the political sectarian elite into, you know, doing uh, something. Most of them, uh, you know, dealt with it as if it's it's like any other uh, catastrophe that this country has. Uh, has uh, experienced, or they try to free ride it and use it for their own narrow political purposes. But that is something also that I think is very troubling about what has happened in the period immediately after the explosion. Big crises like these can be moments of healing, but they are also moments when you see the real fissures and divisions and how these are being manipulated in Lebanese society. And my greatest fear is that uh, it, it, trends that had already been in motion, uh, demands for greater, for for sectarian communities to move inwards, for greater movement, kind of a divorce among uh, 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 what are often considered to be homogeneous sectarian communities, uh, is is being set in motion by some people. Uh, as Rima was saying, the kind of uh, xenophobia, but also the kind of hatred that you uh, that you heard Im- immediately uh, after the explosion is, is worrying. And my greatest fear is that for many Lebanese, uh, the location of the explosion, uh, really the cosmopolitan heart of Beirut, uh, and we should not mince words, an area that is also majority Christian, uh, suggests that, uh, you know, something about the Lebanon that we've known in the last 100 years may be gone. And, and this, this, this kind of dynamic that, you know, had been, had started before the explosion. My greatest worry is that it will accelerate in the future. Uh, Lara, do you want to talk about the the streets? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, So in the immediate aftermath of the explosion, just the next day, what we saw was an army of volunteers, hundreds if not thousands of people, uh, went down to some of the most damaged neighborhoods. And uh, yes, it should be admitted, like Lima said, that they predominantly focused on some of the gentrified neighborhoods, the neighborhoods that they're most familiar with, these were young students, high school, university students uh, who came with hard hats, brooms, uh, had no idea what they were doing, uh, but they coordinated their efforts together. And there were small groups of friends who just took to the street and started 
uh, clearing the debris, started going to uh, the homes of elderly residents, checking up on them, seeing if they needed anything, uh, trying to supply them with medicine, with food. Um, according to the governor of Beirut, and I'm not sure if this figure is accurate, it's about 300,000 people who were rendered homeless uh, explosion. Uh, so a lot of different initiatives were very quickly established uh, and created uh, to provide housing for people who no longer had safe housing. Um, and uh, all of this work was being done uh, for the most part by groups that had been established during October 17, uh, during the popular uprising. And I think that's primarily why the response was so quick. Uh, and why these groups were so rapidly dispatched. I'm part of some of these groups, and immediately, within a couple of hours, there was already, you know, plans. Um, sorry, somebody. Sorry, keep going, keep going. I'm not sure who that question was addressed to, but it just disappeared. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I was saying uh, all of these networks and different groups and initiatives had already been formed uh, first during October 17 and then to, res to respond to the financial crisis and um, all of the other things that have been, ha that have been happening in Lebanon uh, for the past year or so. Um, a, a good comparison in the U.S. would be you know, Occupy Sandy. Uh, and the way uh, Occupy Sandy responded to Hurricane Sandy, uh, and I think it was in like the northeast of northeast of the U.S., and uh, that was, I think, a result uh, of you know the organizing and the networks that were established during Occupy uh, Wall Street. Um, and something very very similar happened here. And I think you know it, it's both it's a blessing in disguise and it's it we were lucky that all of these groups had already been formed and were ready to be deployed uh, but very quickly you had a lot of voices from the left who were worried that by having all of these young people cleaning the street and uh, you know basically acting on behalf of the state that they're absolving the state from its responsibilities and its duties and there was a very big fear that, you know, this anger and this rage that so many of us were feeling was going to be absorbed by this relief, this, this relief work and this aid work. Uh, now, thankfully, that did not happen. Uh, what I saw and I think, you know, what we witnessed across the board was uh, these students that were already starting to receive some form of political education since October 17. Uh, that had been engaging in uh, mass student walkouts, that had been going on strike, that had been joining demonstrations, uh, that had, you know, been confronted with a lot of challenges because of the coronavirus, because of the financial situation, because of banks withholding their parents' uh, money and not being able to pay tuition. So it was a continuation of this uh, politicization and to a certain extent radicalization of our use. Uh, that didn't, uh, that ultimately culminated in this organizing for a Saturday. Uh, it had, it, it went under many different names, you know, a Saturday of rage, Saturday of vengeance. Uh, and uh, there was a demonstration that was organized shortly after uh, the blast. I think it was like five days or so. Um, and, you know, it, it was expected for the state to unleash all its violence. Uh, as it had done over the past few months, um, and, and it did so. And at the end of the Saturday demonstration, there was hundreds of people who were injured. Uh, an incredible amount of tear gas was fired. Uh, the security forces were firing directly at people's faces. Uh, a few demonstrators lost their eyes. 
Um, and uh, these demonstrations continued for a few days afterwards. Um, it's it's good to note that you know the state was completely absent. It's true, um, but at the same time, the security apparatus of the state was almost omnipresent. Um, different security and intelligence agencies uh, were on the street. Uh, they were either decorative; they were just standing around. Uh, or they were harassing people who were volunteering. We heard many cases of, you know, questioning people, uh, asking them what they're doing there, asking for identification. Uh, many women were reporting that they were being sexually harassed by these security forces. Uh, later on, they tried uh, through the Interior Ministry, there was an attempt to regulate this work, and they were asking international and local uh, non-governmental organization to coordinate the work and to give them notice of what they're doing and who they are and where their funding is coming from. So, yes, the state was absent in the relief efforts, but the state was everywhere um, when it came to intimidate, to harass, uh, and, and really... The moment is really difficult to describe because, you know, the entire city was in mourning. Uh, the entire city, it felt like as if it was weeping. And yet you have security and intelligence agencies, uh, you know, coming and people just passing through with their, you know, military vehicles, their big weapons and filming people who are sweeping the streets. Um, so that's kind of an overall image of, you know, at least the first week to 10 days in the immediate aftermath of, of the explosion. Can I just jump in to add uh, just two points? One is that, uh, I mean, I fully agree with uh, with what Basil and Lara have described, but I, I also think that, um, you know, uh, there's something also to, uh, to be highlighted in the sense that the port, it's something about uneven development in Lebanon, that the port of Beirut is... Uh, the port through which more than 70% of our uh, uh, imports come uh, come from, for an economy that has uh, uh, almost no uh, productive sectors. So we are, uh, um, you know, it's uh, it's an economy that is that mainly relies on the banking sector and the real estate sector, and that imports everything from uh, from fuel to to wheat, bread, except for bread. And this is why they've been, there's always fear of shortage of bread. Uh, which we've been hearing uh, uh, again uh, this week. Um, so, uh, you know, the the explosion of the port has also very heavy, has a very clear and, and uh, uh, dangerous impacts on uh, livelihoods and, and you know the the uh, uh, the ability to survive and continue uh, in the in this country. Uh, so that's that's on one hand. On the on the other hand, I fully agree that uh, you know while state institutions are weak and, and absent in many areas, they're very present when it comes to uh, repressing uh, protests. And the the you know the repression we've seen on uh, the first Saturday after the explosion was really unbelievable. And there's something uh, also about that day because it was a few days after the visit of the French pre president who was portrayed as the savior. Um, on that day, thousands of uh, tear gas canisters were thrown at protesters. Uh, these are French uh, tear gas uh, uh, canisters. So it's, it also says something about, uh, you know, uh, imperial powers and, and, uh, and how it functions here. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, and the first thing the state has done after the explosion is first they put Beirut under, um, uh, you know, they announced an emergency law in Beirut. And then the parliament met 
Uh, and you would think that an exceptional uh, meeting for the parliament would, would, would deal with the repercussions of the explosion, but they had one, one uh, item on the agenda, and it was, uh, it was about an announcing a state of emergency in the whole country. So basically, Lebanon is now under the rule of the military. Um, and this, this says a lot about uh, the month and, and, and to come and how the, uh, the uprising will continue to unfold. And, uh, and you know, um, I, I, expect, I, mean, I like Basel, I'm, I'm not very optimistic about, uh, uh, you know, what is, uh, how, how it's going to unfold. But uh, these are things that we need to know in order to, just to set the ground uh, uh, for, for further discussion. Can I add one more uh, idea to the, before we leave the port issue? Uh, because I think there is also, I mean, the, the port is very symbolic of the political economy of corruption in Lebanon. Now, as Rima was saying, 80% of what we consume is imported and 70% of what we import is through the port of Beirut. Now, what's interesting in the past decades, the one place where you see the different sectarian political parties coexist in a lovely manner is in the port. Because that's where it's, it's like big chunks of it is in no man's land. And that's where they agree on the distribution of the spoils. In fact, for a country that your, your consumption, 80% of your consumption is from imports. And for a place, a site which, from which you import 70%, in one year, according to one MP, the port of Beirut did not uh, bring uh, to the state any revenues, assuming we didn't uh, import anything. So then the question is raised, where did the money go? Where did the custom revenue go? And so I think the, the, if you want to see a good example of the political economy of corruption in the post-war period, it was the port. And now these people who, who used to make their livelihood from this mechanism are actually worried because they believe that in any future port, there will be some kind of international monitoring of, uh, of the port. So it, it, it symbolizes a whole many things about the, the kind of situation we've had in the post-war period. Um. I don't know if we want to talk more about the the explosion itself. We can keep coming back to it, but I did want to spend a good amount of time on, uh, you know, the backdrop, which is for the past almost a year, 10 months now, uh, there's been the uprising, the October revolution in Lebanon that started uh, last October, uh, which was, it's been the largest uprising in Lebanon's history. Uh, it's brought out a large percentage of the country's population into the streets. Um, and, you know, even though the protests have risen and fallen, the, the momentum, has, they keep returning to the streets, basically. So my question is, how or what has sustained this movement for, for so long? And if you each want to speak uh, for five to ten minutes about, about that um, again. I, yeah. Um, um, I think, I mean, the movement, I mean, the uprising is still at its early stages, and I think um, it will continue for a long time. It's it's a process, and and it's a process that has started, you know, one, one can argue since December 2010 or, or 2011 with the Arab uprisings, uh, but it also has a route that, uh, uh, you know, that preceded that in Lebanon. Um, so... Uh, 
yes, the the and we've seen how the movement went through ups and downs with uh, you know the 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 revolution uh, very quickly met with the counter revolution, the efforts at uh, sectarianization, repression. Uh, also co-optation from some parties. Um, the, the difficulties of uh, organizing while the while the uprising had already uh, started. So it uh, you know it started as a social explosion uh, that needed to be uh, challenged politically. And I think this is where we are. Uh, to, I mean, this is the dilemma of today. How do we how do we transform the anger in the street? And it's you know it has moved from an initial movement that was uh, that was uh, uh, you know calling for the for the downfall uh, or the toppling of the of the regime uh, that was calling for accountability that was against corruption um, uh, that was against all of them with the slogan uh, you know uh, to what we've seen in the past weeks is a movement that is saying we don't want accountability anymore we want revenge uh, so, uh, and and this is what the explosion has uh, has really brought out this anger and this feeling that you know we don't believe in any channel anymore. We don't believe in uh, you know uh, um, in the ability to go through a process or a transition. Um, it, it became very much uh, a matter of survival and revenge, uh, and and because it it's read as a war, as a war that has been uh, waged against us. First, economically, but then, uh, you know, it also became about security. Literally, we have, I mean, we've been blown up in, in, in our homes. Um, so I think there's there's a transition here that, uh, uh, you know, that, that is uh, going to affect how the movement uh, will, will transform. Uh, but, but also, it's, you know, it's an uprising that will go through many stages. It's an uprising that is, uh, uh, that is uh, clear in what it doesn't want, uh, not yet very clear in what it, it wants, because it wants many things, and within the movement, uh, we have many currents, you know, the more liberal, the more radical, the, the leftist, etc. Uh, there have been many efforts since October, you know, a, a, a big debate is whether we need to unify the front or to actually divide and, uh, uh, you know, to unify uh, uh, amongst those who are closer politically. So uh, can we unify? Can we can we have an alliance with, you know, the, the radical left with the liberals? Or is it better if they uh, organize and mobilize separately? There's a lot of time and effort that is being put on organizing internally. I mean, there's a lot of time put on drafting political uh, papers and, uh, you know, uh, uh, discussing uh, 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 these uh, documents, which is very, which is important, right? Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's there are political moments and political opportunities that sometimes need to be grasped. And this is when you wish there's a, like a, you know, a vanguard uh, that would take over and and uh, and act uh, to overthrow, but we we don't have it. We're not there. I think that the, the specifically for for this audience, the left in Lebanon is is unfortunately weak. Uh, it's, it's not uh, well organized. Uh, many divisions uh, internally. Um, so um, you know, it's unlikely that this. And if anyone really grasped this moment, uh, it it would just be one step in this longer historical, uh, um, uh, you know, um, unfolding of of this uprising. Um, because those who are more organized are uh, are not exactly those who will uh, bring about social justice uh, necessarily. Um, you know, but we've seen many efforts and we've seen, uh, you know, there's more than 120 groups 
that uh, that were born after this uh, initial uh, spark of the revolution. Uh, many of of those groups are very small. I mean, they have sometimes a big presence online, but on the ground, uh, very small groups. Uh, and, and the effort is really about, uh, you know, and I think the challenge is really about, um, you know, now there's a, the question of representation, who represents the street, who represents these different groups. Um, but, I'm, you know, we're very trapped in this uh, uh, paradigm of uh, you know, a participatory uh, democracy, etc., which is all great. And, you know, there's a, a big uh, focus on leaderless uh, movements. Um, I, I dare say, unfortunately, you know, a, a feature of uh, new social movements. Um, that is that is taking away a lot of the efforts in, uh, in uh, reflecting internally on how we do what we're doing rather than analyzing politically the material conditions around us and trying to grasp those opportunities when uh, when we can. Uh, of course, it's very important to organize. Uh, and, and again, uh, you know, there's been efforts at organizing unions, efforts at organizing uh, uh, um, you know, migrant work, uh, at organizing politically uh, around different ideas, at organizing. And it's it's interesting, it, it shifted from, you know, a big social explosion and uh, that is focused in the squares of the different regions of the country. But then it became targeted mobilizations against specific institutions, uh, whether it's uh, private companies or state institutions. And then we've seen how it was the students who have, uh, you know, it, it became about schools and, and universities. Um, um, so, you know, we've seen how this has been transforming in, in terms of tactics and in terms of uh, targets. Uh, one very interesting thing about uh, the uprising also is how in the absence of a labor movement um, that has been systematically, uh, um, you know, co-opted since the since the mid 90s in Lebanon. Um, people were somehow aware and knew that at the core of this, it's a matter of uh, stopping labor or the engine of production somehow or 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 accumulation. And and, and because we were unable to uh, to enforce a strike, uh, it was roadblock. And and to me, these are these are equal to strikes uh, because people were actually blocking roads uh, and, and burning tires to shut down the country. And by shutting down the country, it meant no one goes to work. No one does. So it is a kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's it's an it's a different way of doing strikes. So it's these tactics are uh, are all very important uh, to understand, um, you know, how things might might unfold. And we've seen that, you know, everyone knew and we were expecting that with the deepening of the financial crisis, there would be more layoffs and more unemployment uh, um, or unemployment. Um, and we've already started to see this with some, you know, some universities like uh, uh, the biggest uh, employer in this country is after the state is a university uh, that has um, uh, laid off 850 workers in one day. Uh, but we have also seen the uh, weaknesses of, of organizing there, the inability to strike uh, uh, and, and the politics of, you know, what what Berlin calls uh, a cruel optimism. People thinking that, uh, you know, if I don't mobilize, maybe I can, uh, I can uh, keep my job or I can go back to my job or, or, you know, or people just feeling thankful that they still have a job 
job, even if, if uh, you know, the, their salary is now worth, um, the, the, we've lost more than 80% of, of our purchasing power. Uh, but there are all these uh, um, considerations that make it difficult for um, organization. And on top of that, I think this is at, at the labor level, but at, at also the political level, we know that um, safety or, or security is a main issue when people are really scared. This is a country where we're ruled by this is this is a mafia rule and militias are still around and people know that and we've seen in many cases people have been targeted by uh, by the thugs of those militias um so it's it also becomes about uh, you know there's there's serious fear about uh, uh, uh safety and uh you know lebanon and iraq are very uh, um, you know are very close to each other in their makeup or and, and also in the geopolitical uh, scene so what we what, what we've what we're seeing in, in Iraq and uh, just yesterday um, is something that I would not be surprised at all if we start seeing more of that in Lebanon assassination targeted assassinations uh, you know uh, uh, killing or or um, attacks against activists etc and I think people are aware and know that and this is why organizing or being pre- prepared for the struggle this is not a struggle that is going to be peaceful unfortunately not because we are you know uh, we uh, we are we're happy with blood not because we are uh, we are not peaceful and we're violent but because it's a very violent system that ha- that is not going to uh, you know to uh, uh, to let us get away without uh, uh, without without it be- being very violent against us Um, Basil, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, sure. the movement from a, I guess, from an economic lens? Yeah, well, I mean, from an economic perspective, given how bad the situation is, you you would expect greater numbers of people in the street all the time. I mean, as Rima was saying, in our per- 80% of our purchasing power has evaporated. And so whether... 17 October onwards, 17 October was the explosion, uh, explosion of real economic, socioeconomic anger and deprivations. And of course, immediately the sectarian parties, some of them, you know, gave it a week to, you know, uh, to uh, defuse some try to free ride it and so on. But the question that I keep asking myself, and I think this is important for your audience, is how come decades of socioeconomic crisis peaking now with the overlapping economic, financial, uh, banking, uh, environmental, and now with this disaster? I mean, as, as, as a Latin American scholar once put it, where are all the protesters? I mean, you would expect much more people. And I think that's where uh, Gramsci comes in, particularly for your audience. Because remember, Gramsci teaches us that you always need to link uh, structure with ideology. I think this is really the genius of the Lebanese sectarian system, whereby it, it, it's very successful in creating this uh, sectarian ideological hegemony which is built, again, following Gramsci, on a particular political economy, what myself and others, Hannes Bowman, call the political economy of sectarianism. But what is interesting is that this political economy is in crisis. And yet you see 
the sectarian parties able to uh, to continue. And if they want to field people to the street, they would overwhelm anyone. And so that's why I think Gramsci is so important that we, we should not speak of uh, demonstrations as if as if it is something natural. I mean, that comes as a result of socioeconomic problems and political problems. But my, the question that I keep asking myself, well, what's happening on the other side? And again, the as Rima was saying, in the the technology of the, the, the sectarian system in Lebanon is, was so effective since 1990 onwards that it was it was very good in destroying any any kind of avenues for alternative opposition movement, whether from the labor movement or the professional syndicates, whether whatever we call the left and so on. And so you are in this conundrum now whereby uh, sectarian parties, despite the economic crisis, are still very strong coercively. They are strong ideologically. And again, I mean, I'm bringing Gramsci because I think he's very important here. The other side, in their multiplicity and in their diversity, they are being asked to organize in a situation of crisis, and they are being asked to do in one year what it took the sectarian system, well, almost 100 years to achieve. And so I think this is why we have to we have to link uh, political economy with, ideolo- with ideology. We have to remember that the sectarian system remains very powerful and it can use an array of techniques, ideological, uh, coercive, what, what have you. And, and that, is the, that is the problem that we find ourselves in now, that despite this massive economic crisis, uh, the guys on the other side feel that they are stronger and that they can uh, continue to uh, uh, sustain themselves. Yeah, that's very helpful, Bethel. Thank you. Um, Lara, I don't know if you want to talk ab- uh, a little bit more about this question, how uh, the movement has sort of um, taken on a new dimensions, as R- Rima said, from 2011 to, to now, basically. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'll start where uh, Basel ended, uh, you know, that the, the, the bad guys think that, uh, you know, they're stronger after the explosion. Uh, but something that's been really interesting, interested to me is that um, a lot of, you know, the grassroots organizing and the various leftist groups and feminist groups uh, and student groups managed to kind of uh, shake off some of the shock that uh, we all experienced after the explosion and do a lot of organizing underground uh, to agitate uh, ahead of the Saturday demonstration uh, to distribute propaganda. Uh, There were several car convoys that were going around. Um, While granted, you know, uh, a commonly echoed sentiment was uh, now is time for the gallows. Uh, But at the same time, uh, there was also, you know, the sense that we don't only want to execute people uh, and those who are responsible for the blast. uh, That, you know, ultimately street justice is not uh, that there was a strong demand from particular groups for one, accountability, and two, justice for the victims. Um, so three days after the blast, uh, a group of some of these different uh, leftist 
groups as well, um, put out a statement. And I just want to briefly read uh, some excerpts that I translated and not uh, word for word. But uh, just to give your audience that I think might be interested in some of this resistance that's now happening on the ground and some of the sentiment of this uh, organizing that's happening as well. So it reads, quote, on August 4, 2020, the authorities admitted to their criminality when they declared a state of emergency. Declaring a state of emergency is akin to declaring war on those who survived and a declaration of a growing police state. On August 4, 2020, the authorities declared war on us and we declare the start of a battle for liberation. October 17 is no more. We won't make demands anymore. We will struggle to liberate our city from its occupiers. We will struggle to liberate the money of small depositors from the banks, to liberate people from the corruption of these occupiers, and ultimately to liberate ourselves from the system. And uh, this is a reference to something that the Lebanese president had said early on in the demonstrations, uh, you know, addressing protesters. He simply said, if you don't like it, you can immigrate. Uh, so the statement reads, on August 4, 2020, the battle for your departure, not ours, has started. Um, you know, and then there was like an alternative media platform called Propaganda, who was also agitating for these protests. And they had this illustration that read, we will drag you over the scattered glass of Beirut. So granted, there is this feeling that, you know, now is the time for vengeance. But also a lot of the unseen is this underground organizing that's happening between a lot of different groups uh, who share a political vision. Uh, you might raise the point of whether or not the radical left or the left more broadly, sh you know, should be in bed with liberals. I think, you know, uh, learning from what has happened over the past 10 years, I think that would be a mistake to kind of compromise and, and be in an alliance or network of sorts uh, with liberals. Um, but to answer directly the question, I think, you know, what has sustained this uprising is, uh, is a never ending onslaught of calamities. And obviously the latest of which was the explosion at the port. Um, but for a little bit of context of what was happening before October 17, because October 17 is often described as this explosion, as this eruption of fury and anger. Um, but, uh, you know, this was in the making for at least a couple of years. Um, when the parliamentary elections were last held in uh, May of 2018, and these parliamentary elections, after having been postponed for many, many years uh, for bullshit reasons, frankly, um, and, and the results of these elections came out, you know, as they were expected, um, despite a reformed electoral law that was in theory supposed to give independent candidates a shot. Uh, but the same old force, uh, the same old faces uh, reemerged. And after the elections over the coming months, the economic situation started deteriorating. And that's when protests uh, started towards the end of 2018. And they were in small pockets all around the country. Every other day, there was a different sector that was demonstrating, uh, whether it was like reti retired servicemen fighting for their pensions, uh, public sector employees demanding a, a wage uh, raise. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, that we had, uh, starting in too early 2019, these one-day strikes uh, by also various uh, sectors. So uh, October was the culmination of uh, over almost two years of mobilizations on, on a small scale. Uh, and of course, you know, there's a very rich and important history of organizing that precedes 2010. 
Um, but if we want to look just at the last decade, at the start of the Arab uprisings uh, in Lebanon, there's two moments that we can pause at uh, and that the October 17 moment builds on. Uh, the first one, of course, being 2011, uh, which were uh, demonstrations against the sectarian uh, political system in Lebanon. And the second one in 2015, uh, what, what, what was initially dubbed uh, the anti-garbage uh, protests eventually grew to become uh, anti-government protests that tackled uh, all, uh, you know, all aspects of, uh, you know, whether it's government corruption, abuse of power, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so I think, you know, it's important to understand that October 17, October 17 is just a continuation of these two mobilizations and mobilizations and organizing that had been happening uh, for decades, despite, you know, the suppression of labor movements, suppression of, uh, you know, protests in general in Lebanon. Uh, in October 2019, what was really fascinating to me was how much the political discourse uh, had grown and had matured. Uh, and in particular, uh, in the first 10 days or in the first two weeks of October 17, uh, I was really taken by how much, how radicalized, uh, at least seemingly, Lebanese society had become uh, on these roadblocks that usually, you know, drivers would complain about. We would be, you know, on a roadblock and drivers would thank us and say, and thank you so much, even though it was disrupting the flow of traffic, it was disrupting their work. Uh, but there was a general sense that now is the time to do something, uh, despite the inconveniences on an individual level. Uh, so it seemed, at least in the first few weeks, that there was acceptance for direct action. Uh, there was a sustained general strike for about 10 days or so shortly after October 17. I think it started on October 21st. Um, so uh, there was this... Yeah, this this really newfound radicalization that that I witnessed at the beginning of uh, October 17 uh, that was interesting and that builds on uh, what we had seen in the in the last decade or so. Yeah, um, I want to take a little bit of a step back. Uh, maybe we can um, step back to to explain to an audience that isn't familiar very much with the Lebanese political system. Um, I think it was very helpful, Basil, when you talked about Gramsci and the sectarian system. But can you uh, can we uh, could you all explain a little bit more about how the sectarian system works? Just because I know a lot of the audience is is not that familiar with Lebanon. I know, Rima, you've taught you've used uh, the term sectarian capitalism. Uh, so maybe uh, explaining a little bit about why you use that term and then talking about uh, how. Yeah, just uh, give a, a broader picture of how that works. I think you're muted. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so I've been uh, thinking and uh, trying to write recently about the concept of uh, sectarian capitalism. And uh, obviously I'm in conversation with uh, the literature um, and, and the theories on racial capitalism, uh, not just to borrow and uh, you know uh, reproduce the same theory here, but it's really about how do we get beyond the exceptionalism of uh, the Middle East when we talk about sectarianism, but also the exceptionalism of the US when we talk about race? 
And uh, how, how do we think about identitarian politics or the politics of identity and uh, it, its links with uh, capitalism? So, and, and, you know, at the core of this, it's really about thinking of, of both sectarianism, uh, 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 racism, but also patriarchy, uh, uh, communalism communalism and other parts of the world and you know all these types of uh, identity divisions as an engine uh, of capitalism and uh, um, and in my case about thinking th- about the centrality of sectarianism for the rise of capitalism um, you know in the in the late 19th century mount lebanon uh, and but then i mean and there there are some excellent historical accounts uh, that have already shown uh, showed us how there's this link between uh, the rise and sect- and political sectarianism or the sectarianization of, uh, or the politicization of sectarian difference, um, and the rise of uh, capitalism, and uh, uh, you know, in this part of the world. Uh, but it's uh, what I'm trying to also look at is how is not just how it emerged, but also how it uh, developed and, and metamorphosed with time. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, what what do we make of sectarian neoliberalism more specifically? Uh, and uh, 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 how how is neoliberalism uh, interacting with um, you know or or is is really how is sectarianism at the heart of of uh, neoliberalism and this is not to say that uh, neoliberalism or capitalism uh, would uh, would not exist if if we don't have sectarianism right? Uh, uh, there would be other sorts of uh, divisions that would be exploited, but it's really to, to think about how uh, those identity divisions are used beyond the idea of, uh, um, you know, just uh, homogeneous groups that are oppressing and exploiting each other. Uh, because in, in this case, and I think the case of sectarianism can also be very in, enlightening to think about uh, racism, because uh, this is a case where the hierarchy is not as clear, right? Uh, the, the the divisions are not as clear, and therefore uh, thinking about race uh, uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's kind of its fluidity and race beyond the categories uh, themselves um, and how it interacts with class and with, uh, uh, you know, accumulation of, of capital um, is uh, is very useful in this case because we see that it's not just about intersectarian exploitation or division. It's not about the class sect. It's not about all the Shias are poor and exploited, all the, but it's, it's very much about also intra-sectarian exploitation or cross-sectarian alliances uh, of, uh, you know, of class. So it's uh, it's about this complex picture where um, se- where beyond saying that uh, you know old debates were were about whether whether it, whether whether it is sectarian or it's not sectarian, right? So it's either a class uh, struggle or a sectarian conflict. Uh, well, I, you know, and now we're starting, I and mean, myself and, and many others, I think, uh, you know, to to think about. Well, it's both, and 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 how do they feed into each other, and what are these uh, uh, process processes that unfold with. Um, neoliberalism and how is sectarian uh, sectarianism or sectarianization shifting to uh, to benefit uh, uh, neoliberalism and and the accumulation of, of capital um so and and i'm i'm focused on that aspect because there's been a lot written about 
you know, the institutionalization of sectarianism in the, in the region. Uh, and of course, this is an important uh, history that, uh, you know, the history of colonial, colonialism and, and uh, the institutionalization of, of identity politics, power sharing, and, you know, this, this idea of uh, uh, the, the deep, divided society paradigm uh, as if there are societies around the world that are shallowly divided right as if class division is not deep or gender div- div- divisions are not deep enough um, uh, so but there but and, and then there is a history on you know the the political economy of Lebanon uh, the centrality of the banking sector and the financial sector uh, but you know there isn't a lot of uh, um, work that uh, merges these two literatures together. So I'm trying in this book project to do that and to also think about change and shift in in the salience of sectarian uh, uh, boundaries and sectarian, uh, uh, but also the content of those groups beyond the groupism of uh, you know using sects as uh, the basis for sectarianism. Um, so, so this is on, on one hand. On the other hand, I mean, an important aspect to understand sectarianism and why, you know, we talk about sectarianism from above. The elites use sectarianism for obvious reasons, but then why do people follow, right? Uh, uh, and and here comes, you know, as Basil was saying, the importance of ideology. Uh, but then also, you know, the the, uh, the way clientelism works and uh, there's a lot written and and I think very important work on uh, clientelism some of which is Basil's work uh, um, uh, so clientelism in the sense of uh, uh, you know uh, non-state welfare if you wish so there's there's a there's a clear uh, uh, you know the state uh, has been state institutions have been weakened there's no welfare state in Lebanon and and the only way people can access services or benefits or, uh, you know, uh, help will uh, is through go, by going through those sectarian uh, leaders. And in many cases, not not even the sectarian leaders. And this is a system that is very very strong at the neighborhood level. Uh, so it's uh, those in charge of neighborhoods for each political party that uh, that really, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you want, uh, re- divide the, the spoils. Uh, not to everyone, of course. And it's so it's not it's not a non-state welfare that is equal and that is, uh, uh, you know, just. Uh, it's one that um, reproduces the, or, or sectarianizes uh, in order to be used in uh, not just electoral politics, but also everyday politics. Um, and this is where I think there's another aspect of, of clientelism that uh, that we, we should also look at, and that is, um, uh, again, uh, uh, security and and safety because in many cases what those parties are are using you know they promise sometimes uh um, financial or or material help but in many cases it's also about uh giving you backing or protecting you or so it could be positive uh, rewards it could also be a negative uh, uh, uh sanction by uh um you know by um uh, threatening you by actually uh you know not giving you electricity for example and we've heard a lot of stories about uh people who've participated in the uprising and who were um you know uh, uh, clearly attacked in their na- at the neighborhood level where they reside because of their uh, participation where they were excluded from some uh, services or they were 
were on purpose, uh, you know, uh, targeted because of that. So it's and this is why it's a very complex system. These parties also have their institutions, right? They have their hospitals, their schools, their uh, um, uh, universities, etc. So, um, so I think that yes, uh, sectarianism is a whole system, uh, um, and it, it creates created, uh, you know, its structures, but also its culture. And this is why it reproduces itself uh, and, and it's, it's a system that is, um, uh, you know, strong. Uh, but I also don't think that it's it's a system that is impossible uh, to topple. It's also a system that relies very much on geopolitics and, and relationships with um you know, um, uh, countries abroad or, or uh, regional, regional, international uh, forces. So, um, so, but, and we've seen in this past year that there has been many holes in the system that, uh, that one could have uh, used. Um, um, and we have seen that the system is uh, sometimes cornered. So we've seen its fragility sometimes, uh, but it's very quick at uh, reproducing itself. And uh, we and since 2011, it became very clear even before. But uh, for example, the municipal elections in, in 2000, uh, after the 2015 uh, 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 movement, we've seen how in Beirut, all political parties, those who've been against each other for decades, who have fought against each other, they, they all ran on the same list together against what was then called civil society. Um, so they are, uh, uh, you know, their their class awareness is very high. Um, and, and maybe the, the one way to for us to, um, you know, fight them is uh, for us to also work on, um, you know, our uh, class awareness. And, and that, that is not just about, uh, you know, an us versus them that is loose, but but really about, you know, labor relations, class relations, and and what it means in this uh, broader struggle that uh, that has uh, you know been unleashed in Lebanon since October uh, 2019. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, can I can I add something, uh, Shireen? Oh, please. Yeah. For, I think for your audience, it's quite in, you know, it's quite interesting to know why what's happening in Lebanon is different from, say, the politics of multiculturalism or interculturalism in North America and Europe. I mean, if you look at Lebanon from Europe or North America, you say, okay, what's the, what's the problem with, with sectarian identities? I mean, let everybody celebrate uh, their own identities and let, let, you know, power sharing works in some places. So why doesn't it work in Lebanon? I think just sort of for background for your audience, I mean, the problem in Lebanon is that the sectarian system, after going through a period where it was necessary to establish some kind of agreement on what is really a state that was created by colonial fiat, now, with all the intersectional elements it has, the violence against women, the violence against minorities, the violence against regions, the violence against the poor, and so on. Sect sectarian identities now uh, are, are being imposed and recreated and reproduced, if you like, through the kind of complicated machinery that Rima was talking about. So it's very important for your audience to know that there are multiple struggles going on in Lebanon at the same time now. And I think that is part of the problems that Lara was talking about and Riva. One, one struggle is inside the sectarian political parties. 
meaning those who want to impose, and this is the analogy with Iraq. In fact, in many ways, Iraq is a later day Lebanon. I mean, what's happening in Iraq today, we went through it in the late 1980s in Lebanon. So on one side, you have those who want to impose one identity and one identity only, and that is the sectarian identity, and they will use violence to impose that identity. There's a struggle inside that sectarian system around the balance of power inside that system. The other struggle in the country, and this is the one that we saw emerging beautifully on the 17th of October, is between all those who still believe that for ideological reasons, material reasons, what have you, the sectarian system represents them, and between all those who just do not accept that this system has any more uh, any more validity, and and they are searching for uh, for something new. And and again, I don't want to repeat what was said earlier. The problem is that you are trying now to create a new system, which which should look the exact opposite of the one that has been established. Again, to come back to Gramsci, uh, the old is dead, the new has yet to be born. This is the age of zombies. And all the abnormalities that we are living through in Lebanon is in great measure a consequence of this of this struggle. Yeah. Um let's see. Yeah, I was I was thinking maybe to put more context into the, the gallows and the demand for vengeance. It's because, you know, we, even though the uprising has taken down Hariri, et cetera, you see this rotating ruling class that people find they're responsible because for, for the explosion, they didn't mention that they didn't bother to mention over seven years that there's 2,700 tons of nitrate in, in this building. But it's also, uh, I mean, the connection to the sectarian system is, is clear when people are saying, we're the popular revolution, you're the civil war, you're the sectarian civil war. And, and so those are the new lines that are drawn more on, on class and the separation from that, the, the, the desire to separate from the previous sectarian system, I guess. Um, uh, there's so much more to cover. I, um, I guess uh, if, if you guys could speak more about the regional and international dimensions of, of this crisis. Um, for example, what should internationalists and socialists globally know and, and how should they agitate to support the protesters in, in Lebanon who are in worse economic conditions and continue to go out in the, the streets? Um, Basil, I don't know if you want to start this one off. Well, well I'll start. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I mean, I think what they should know is that this is not a simple colonial, anti-colonial, imperial, anti-imperial struggle. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, what they should know is, again, as Gramsci, as Edward Said used to remind us all the time, you're either with truth and justice, freedom, democracy, everywhere, or you're not. You cannot pick and choose. And, and I think that's very important to understand the uh, choices that some of the political actors make in Lebanon. The other thing I think which is very important, in terms of the Lebanese diaspora community and the Lebanese internationalists, if you like, there's a lot of support. But the other thing I think the lesson that can be taken from Lebanon, as Rima was saying, is going back to 
politics, I hate to use this word, but in the classical sense of politics, that is organization, long-term organization, a kind of a Hannah Arendt agonic understanding of, of, of politics. That is, th- there are no half-truths. Uh, to borrow from Max Weber, you know, struggle is not a taxi you can stop at any corner. You have to stay with it all the time. Uh, Lebanon now also, I mean, from a kind of a international perspective, we are really in a very different situation. People who are trying to make change in this country, and this is b- because of the international and geopolitical spotlight on the country. What is the role of the international community is the elephant in the room today, in the sense that a lot of people who want change in Lebanon feel that it cannot be done without the help from the external actors. The problem is that external actors seem to be divided between those who want to reproduce the system, which is reproduce the sectarian system, and those who want to tweak it in their own favor. And so the the choices for people, for those struggling in Lebanon to change the system are not easy. They are very messy. They become very complicated. And they are not binaries, you know, I am, I am, you know, anti-colonial or whatever. It's a very complicated situation. And I think for your audience, again, uh, one's position on Israel is not enough. One's position on imperialism is not enough. What's much more important is to focus on, well, what's your position on the right of minority groups, the right of women, the right for freedom, democracy in Lebanon, in Iraq, and so on. I, so it's a very complicated situation. Um, maybe I'll add a few uh, points here. I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of support from uh, the Lebanese diaspora, but also from people around the world in terms of donations, in terms of, uh, you know, aid, uh, like humanitarian involvement. And, and that is great. But I think what we need now um, you know, maybe more than uh, charity, although we need, uh, the, the, you know, the, the support is is solidarity and solidarity in the political sense. And why am I saying that? Because I think that what happened in Lebanon, um, this explosion and the aftermath of it and the fact that, you know, all countries from the U.S. to France, to Russia, to Turkey, to Iran are all uh, and of course, Israel are all now, uh, me- uh, you know, uh, meddling with the, with uh, how the, politi- the politics of uh, the aftermath of the explosion is about is very much about how are they going to divide the pie, right? Uh, um, uh, uh, wanting uh, a hegemony over the region is uh, is uh, um, is very much about uh, the resources. It's very much about who will control the port, who will control the electricity. Um, so in, in that sense, uh, as I said at the beginning, it's, it's disaster capitalism. Uh, and this is uh, nothing peculiar to Lebanon. It, it happened in Lebanon. It could have happened anywhere else. And, uh, you know, uh, we've seen it in other places. So the struggles here are not detached from the struggles e- elsewhere. Uh, these are really global struggles against, uh, uh, you know, capitalism, but also against um, what we, uh, you know, uh, As we've seen in in Syria, authoritarianism as well. And the system in Lebanon that is called consociational democracy has nothing to do with democracy. It is an authoritarian uh, system. Uh, So... uh, but uh, this is really to say for uh, for you know an internationalist um, uh, uh, response to this is about 
politicizing the response to what happened in Lebanon and reading it from this lens of a global crisis. And uh, the fact that it happened in Lebanon is, uh, is uh, uh, you know, one can understand the reasons why Lebanon, but it doesn't prevent it happening uh, anywhere else. And we have already seen it. And I think we'll continue to see uh, uh, how disaster capitalism uh, will unfold in, in uh, many parts of the world. Uh, and, and saying that we need to politicize our solidarity, this is this is also about pressuring where you are, right? Pressuring your own governments, organizing where you are, um, and linking those struggles together. Uh, uh, you know, uh, for us also, uh, uh, all these states uh, and state leaders work together. They meet and they uh, they concoct. They're they're sitting now in secret meetings. Uh, you know, cooking what uh, uh, what they will feed us next in this region. Uh, maybe we should do the same. We should uh, we should connect more with each other. We should build more our uh, solidarity networks. We should work more to understand together uh, how uh, global capitalism is unfolding in different places and what it means for all of us. And uh, you know, sometimes uh, um, pressuring uh, uh, in in one place in the world can have a, a lot of effect in another place of the world. So uh, uh, you know, with the elections coming up in the U.S. It's, it's very much about uh, who's going to also become president in the U.S., right? It's very much also about where your tax money is going. Uh, and I think in that sense, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's our duty everywhere to struggle uh, because it's uh, it's a system that is linked globally and uh, you know it's it's difficult to imagine socialism in, in one country uh, detached from the rest of the world. Um, so it, uh, we, it's, a, it's a global struggle and it's by, uh, you know, broadening our networks, working more together, strengthening our organization uh, that we uh, that we really support uh, protesters in Lebanon and protesters around the world from Belarus to uh, to Chile. Um, I wanted to turn to you, Lara. I know you've been involved in a lot of really exciting uh, work on the ground uh, in the uprising, um, specifically with media justice work. So if you could talk about the role of uh, left wing media in the uprising from I know you've been involved in several megaphone um, and the publication you co-founded, The Public Source. Um, sorry, Megaphone's another uh, online publication from Lebanon and Akbar Saha is another one. Um, could you speak about uh, that work? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I just want to very briefly touch on the question that you asked earlier about okay. how folks abroad can, you know, be in solidarity uh, with the ongoing struggle in Lebanon. Uh, I, you know, I have this great fear and I see these so-called anti-imperialists already uh, you know, roaming around, you know, our corpses and uh, seeing this as an opportunity to either further their agendas uh, or to get a book deal and uh, and so on. Um, so just, you know, my, my one word on that is uh, don't repeat, you know, uh, what's ongoing right now in Syria and Lebanon. And I think there's a very high likelihood that it's going to happen because I already see it happening. Um, had the call of local organizers, uh, build networks with people who are on the ground and share your politics, uh, be in constant communication, uh, you know, uh, let others who are uh, here and who understand the situation and who are struggling and who are doing so at a great expense to their lives, to their eyes, their bodies, to their livelihoods, 
let them lead and uh, just uh, basically follow their lead. Um, so media. Um, generally, um, you know, journalism is in crisis, not just in Lebanon, but around the world. And uh, that precedes uh, October 17, and that has been ongoing for many, many years. Uh, ownership of media organizations in Lebanon are, you know, concentrated in a handful of uh, wealthy families. I think there's about, not handful, 12 families who control the media landscape in Lebanon. Uh, so it's very hard to be able to reach wider audiences um, if you're an independent media platform or an activist uh, platform. Um, but uh, over the past few years, uh, there's been several media initiatives uh, that have been uh, very successful and that have managed to uh, share information, verify what's happening on the ground. Akhbar uh, al for example, that wasn't uh, founded in 2019, but it was founded in 2015 during the anti-garbage protest and has been ongoing and has grown uh, exponentially over the past few months. Uh, I think they have about like 100,000 followers on Facebook and uh, they're now viewed as, uh, as a trustworthy, as if news organization. And as far as I know, it's run by a bunch of volunteers. Um, so Akbar al-Seha is one notable example of, you know, media activists who are on the ground and who are reporting on what's happening firsthand and not relying on uh, uh, TV channels or the mainstream press for information. And oftentimes they're much faster at relaying what's happening and much faster at verifying or debunking uh, allegedly what's happening uh, than uh, mainstream platforms. Uh, Megaphone is also another another media initiatives and I think initiative and I think it's been in existence for the past uh, three years I think or maybe four years um, and what they've been doing is actually quite remarkable. There are also a bunch of uh, volunteers. I think there's about thirty of them or so, um, and they respond to the news. Uh, so they provide very quick updates with commentary, sometimes uh, quite uh, you know forceful commentary, very political. Um, that informs of what's happening, but also serves uh, as a tool to mobilize and to organize people who might, you know, be at be at home and and, and be reluctant to join. Um, so I'll briefly talk about the public source, um, which uh, was launched at the beginning of this year. So we've been out for about six months or so. Um, the initial idea behind the public source was to focus uh, solely on in-depth and long-form journalism. Uh, we really wanted to address some of like the social, economic, environmental crises uh, that Lebanon has been facing for the past three decades. Um, so when the idea for the publication was initially conceived uh, a few months before um, the October uprising, uh, we knew that uh, there was going to be planned austerity measures, uh, the looming financial crisis, uh, all of these things were expected to cause a lot of disturbances, a lot of chaos. We kind of anticipated that there was going to be some form of resistance. Of course, we never anticipated that it was going to be in the form of a popular uprising. Uh, but we wanted to be able to uh, create a media organization, one that is independent and that is focused on investigative journalism. Um, of course, while there are several um, investigative units, most prominently the one uh, affiliated to Jadid that has been doing uh, really good work, um, we wanted uh, you know, to establish an organization that is truly independent from the political agendas of the different parties that control uh, the media in Lebanon. 
we, we wanted to at, at least attempt uh, to name the individuals who are responsible for you know, the catastrophic state of affairs right now. Uh, and more importantly, try to pinpoint who's benefiting from all of these crises uh, ongoing for many years. Uh, so on our platform, uh, we are attempting to support a culture of whistleblowing. We have uh, the only whistleblowing platform that's tied to a media organization in Lebanon, one of a handful around the Arab world. Uh, it's called Sedre, which means leak. Uh, we have a couple of different tools on there where potential whistleblowers could contact us safely, uh, securely and, on and anonymously. Um, and uh, we launched the platform with the dispatches from the October Revolution. So uh, we're providing uh, commentary, analysis, reflections from the street, from people who have a stake in the struggle. So we don't have a huge output and we're not putting stuff out on a daily basis. Uh, but there's a lot of reflection and thought behind uh, the pieces that we commission. Uh, we're very selective about who we work with. We, we, we're interested in primarily, you know, commissioning articles by people who have been in different struggles for a long time. Uh, and we're very conscientious of whose voices we elevate and, uh, and maybe by extension, whose voices uh, we don't. Um, and I'm sorry if I took too much time, but the last thing I want to say about the public source um, because we're trying to build this media organization, not just to be an independent platform uh, for a certain kind of journalism, uh, but our organizational structure is very important to us. So uh, we run a non-hierarchical structure, uh, equal decision-making uh, among all of the members of the collective. Uh, we're very transparent about where we get our funding from, how uh, our funding is allocated to different members of the collective. Um, and uh, we're going to recently we're going to launch in a couple of days an internship program, which as far as I'm as far as I know, is the only paid uh, media internship program in the country. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're very also we're very conscientious that labor should be compensated and we compensate our uh, you know, members of the collective, obviously, but also everyone we work with. And in particular, our interns uh, who will be doing meaningful work, who we hope uh, we able to train them to become investigative journalists and uh, stick around in this profession. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned. In oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you mentioned to me how uh, the public source and the other uh, media outlets are really helping to agitate people into the streets uh, in this moment in 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 new ways that that haven't been. In, yeah, in new ways. I mean, uh, you know, I see megaphone and the public source to a certain extent complementary. The uh, the megaphone is doing very quick dispatches of what's happening, reporting from the ground. Uh, they have a ton of stuff that's coming out on a daily basis. Uh, we have long-form, uh, in-depth kind of analysis and uh, trying to kind of position where we are and try to understand this very crucial moment that we now find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we only have a few minutes left. Um, I feel like there's so much more to get in depth on. I know one thing that's um, there's a lot of confusion about in the West, I think, is, is the role of uh, Hezbollah. Uh, I, I know it's either seen as like a uniquely right-wing terrorist organization, uh, or on the other hand, it's seen, you know, as you guys were alluding to, an anti-imperialist, anti-state uh, <laughs> uh, by some uh, people, in, usually in the Western left. Um, so 
maybe if we could talk a little bit about what is Hezbollah's role in Lebanon itself and how protesters navigate like their role in the in the movement. Um, I don't know if Rima wants to tackle that or anybody else. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Uh, well, uh, as you rightly point out, Hezbollah is not uh, an anti-imperialist, uh, uh, you know, party, and it's, uh, um, you know, Hezbollah is a party that uh, that was born out of the uh, Iranian Islamic Revolution, so it's it's very much linked to the Iranian state, um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, is today the strongest party in the country uh, because it. Has the uh, you know milit- militarily it's the strongest, but also uh, politically it's uh, it's one uh, it, you know it it entered the political life through uh, institutions after 2005, and uh, w- its alliance with the party of the president of the republic, the FBM, uh, made this uh, uh, you know made this camp politically the strongest in the country. They also control uh, most of the. Uh, main, uh, you know, um, um, uh, institutions um, uh, in the uh, and also the borders. Uh, so Lebanon has just two borders: one with uh, occupied Palestine, Israel, and, and the other is with uh, with uh, the Syrian state. Um, Hezbollah also occupies the airport. Um, Allegedly, the the port that uh, that exploded, uh, or at least it divides its uh, uh, you know its control over the port with other parties. But it's a party that has a lot of influence internally. It's a party, unlike what we uh, you know, unlike what they like to say that they've never used their arm internally. Uh, they have used their arms internally uh, repeatedly. Actually, since the, uh, the their very start during the civil war, they used their arms uh, internally, but. Um, They've continued to do that in, in 2008. Uh, they did that in, in May 2008. And just yesterday, we've seen clashes, uh, uh, intra Shia clashes, if you want, uh, um, in, in, um, you know, in, in some villages. So um, in that sense, uh, no, Hezbollah is a party that is playing uh, you know uh, that is taking a side in the in, in those bigger imperial uh, struggles in, in the region. It uh, it is clearly the uh, a political arm of Iran and Lebanon, uh, and in that sense, yes, it has played an important role in the as a resistance movement in liberating the south of Lebanon. But it's also important to to uh, to know that uh, the resistance in the south had started way before Hezbollah was even created, and uh, uh, what Hezbollah has actually done is it monopolized uh, resistance against Israel and sectarianized it. Um, so in that sense, it is not, uh, it's definitely not a progressive uh, force. Um, it's, it's, a, um, it's one that has also been, uh, you know, um, uh, very oppressive internally uh, with its uh, with any opponents, and uh, you know they are uh, as a, they're they're no longer uh, guerrilla. It's not it's no longer guerrilla warfare and resistance movement. It's a party that is in uh, all state represented in all state institutions. It's a it's. Um, Part of the mafia rule, it controls areas. It, uh, you know, it controls borders. It smuggles uh, uh, goods. It has its own economy. It has its own army. Um, so it's uh, it's really. Uh, 
uh, you know, a very strong uh, party. And it's also one that is playing the game with everyone else. They uh, they sit on the negotiation table. They uh, they uh, they sat with the French uh, president. Uh, they are uh, bargaining, uh, um, and you know, they're using the stick of the resistance uh, to uh, um, you know uh, to negotiate on that table. Uh, it's also and and uh, you know, in the past uh, um, seven. Seven, uh, seven years, uh, what this party has, bec- we've seen the, I mean, some other horrible sides of this party with it, uh, uh, branching out to uh, fight in Syria, but also in other countries in the region. And uh, and this is uh, this is very unfortunate. So it's really a counter-revolutionary force. It, uh, uh, Hezbollah went to Syria to actually crush the revolution. Uh, and, uh, you know, they can uh, they can call it all they want, uh, uh, you know, as, uh, as a resistance against the Islamist uh, Sunni, uh, you know, they, they have tried to sectarianize it. Uh, uh, but th- the fact remains that uh, they have sided with the uh, criminal uh, uh, regime of uh, al-Assad. And uh, in that sense, uh, it's it's impossible to think of them as an anti-imperialist uh, uh, force or a progressive force. Uh, they are actually, uh, a, a, you know, a party that is um, um, supporting and, and uh, upholding uh, authoritarian regimes and capitalism. Uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, Hezbollah is a major, um, uh, um, they have no problem. They said it very clearly. They were inviting the IMF. So anyone on the anti-imperialist left who has the illusion that uh, that this is, you know, a socialist uh, party, Hezbollah is your typical neoliberal capitalist uh, uh, force. So, um, yeah, I mean, from where I stand, this is what Hezbollah is. And it's actually one of the most dangerous, uh, it's not the only dangerous uh, uh, party in the country, but it's one of the the most dangerous uh, um, uh, parties. And the fact that in the past uh, week, they've been They've used this uh, b- uh, before repeatedly, but we've we've heard this uh, very clearly this past week in the speech of Nasrallah, uh, you know, uh, talking about the civil war and threatening with a civil war um, is uh, is not uh, um, you know uh, this is not just by coincidence that that th- they're bringing this up now. In Syria, it started the same way, right? And uh, um, a war, the civil war. I mean, uh, there's no society in the world that slips into civil war. A war is a decision. And it, it's, a, it's a decision that is taken by those who can go to war. And then the others will get armed uh, uh, if, if they do. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it worries me when we start to hear about this, because it probably means that this is on the, uh, on the table now uh, more seriously. And what I'm trying to say is that if we go to war, Hezbollah will be responsible of uh, not uh, not alone, but it would be one of the responsible uh, forces that uh, that will uh, take us to war. Great. Um, we we just about have to wrap up, but if uh, if anyone, if Basil or Lara want to add in either on this question or uh, anything, any other thoughts that uh, last thoughts. I guess I mean for your own audience. I think it's important that we think about the struggle against sectarianism as something similar to the struggle against uh, neoliberalism. I mean, yeah. the, the need to, to, to create a new kind of uh, identity beyond the narrow sectarian affiliations, and also the need to think about how we go to a new form of 
social democracy and social justice. And what Lara was talking about is so important. I mean, again, it goes back to this whole issue of the ideological hegemony of sectarians. So the, work, the work she's doing is to, is to offer a new kind of uh, truth. Because a lot of the media in Lebanon is is part of this, you know, the machine about manufacturing consent. So the struggle against sectarianism and the struggle against neoliberal neoliberalism are, are the same. In fact, the sectarian parties, as Rima was saying, meet converge on neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm just going to very briefly address the Hezbollah question. Um, I doubt that to anyone's mind, Hezbollah is, uh, you know, a progressive uh, force for good uh, or anti-imperialist. And for the, all of the reasons that Rima already outlined, uh, my concern is uh, this uh, focus on Hezbollah that could potentially lead us to war. Uh, October 17th started with a very basic premise of all of them means all of them. But now what we've been seeing, especially after the explosion at the port, uh, is all of these manufactured reports claiming evidence that Hezbollah was behind the the explosion, uh, that Hezbollah was storing this uh, ammonium nitrate there, that they were going to use it to manufacture weapons. Uh, So far, uh, all of these have been baseless, and there's Mm -hmm. been that's been presented. Uh, so yes, locally, internally, in our conversations and in leftist circles, we can admit that you know Hezbollah has has played a really detrimental role in, in many different aspects. Uh, but we have to be very, very careful, especially when speaking to an international audience and when you know doing work outside of Lebanon and outside of our narrow circles. Uh, not to pinpoint all of the blame on solely Hezbollah and the party's allies, but to just focus on, you know, the very basic premise that all of these political parties have been in cahoots with each other uh, for 40 years. Uh, and if they're not directly uh, involved in a particular crime, that at least they've been complicit through their silence. Um, and I, I think I, that's just important for us to remember, because ultimately a war on Hezbollah is not going to necessarily be a war on Hezbollah. It's going to be a war on the Lebanese people, whether it's economic warfare or direct uh, military strikes. Ultimately, the people of this country will pay uh, the price of this war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that yeah, that was very important. I think. Thank you. Um, people on the chat. Before we wrap up, people on the chat were asking for more information. I'll just say, follow the public source. Follow Megaphone Akhbar Saha. We've posted, I think, on the Facebook event page, uh, articles by the three speakers. Um, we can try to post some more uh, uh, resources as well. But um, yeah, we have to wrap up now. Um, but thank you so much for being in this conversation today. Thank you you so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.